if you want to have passion about what you're filming, then it's not like a job. It's not like we're clocking in to do a commercial about soap. It's where like fully committed that we're experiencing the same wonderment and pain and chaos that the characters are experiencing. And if our passion, you know, for how much fun it is to do that translates, then we get good footage. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. In today's episode, I interviewed Jeremy Newberger, who is a documentary filmmaker. So Jeremy is the CEO of Ironbound Films, where he makes these kick-ass documentaries with his partners, Daniel Miller and Seth Kramer. And they are just really, really talented people. Their very first film ever, The Linguist, was nominated for an Emmy and won awards at Sundance. And every movie that they've had since then has gotten a lot of press and a lot of awards. Um, And they just have this really cool, interesting style doing documentaries where um, all but one of their films so far take a look at a global issue like the movie The Linguist looks at languages that are dying out and kind of what we can do to help languages that are dying out. But rather than just examine that topic um, kind of top down like that, they actually follow around a pair of linguists who are studying this issue. So the, the documentary equally examines the linguists themselves and their role in trying to resurrect some of these languages or prevent these languages from dying out as it is trying to document the phenomenon of these languages dying out. So it is a very personal touch to their movies that is just really cool. So anyways, without further ado, here is documentary filmmaker. Jeremy, thanks so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure, Blake. Yeah. So I'd, I'd like to start, I think, talking about what what Netflix has meant for documentarians on the documentary side. I often think about and will like talk with friends about how much I feel like the proliferation of Netflix has kind of changed the fabric of America. When you have something like a movie like Blackfish come out and all of a sudden SeaWorld is, you know, under complete fire and scrutiny all the time. It's just it, like, I, I can't imagine how many people would have seen Blackfish had it not been on Netflix. And now all these major uh, social and cultural movements are taking place because of Netflix. Like, what does that kind of meant to it, it being on the other side of it, being a docu- documentarian? Well, I mean, any sort of... Uh forum for documentary filmmakers to show their work is, you know, clearly the best news of, you know, our lives because prior to uh, Netflix and some of the other, you know, streaming places you could see documentaries, uh, you were sort of at the mercy of just like a handful of television channels and, you know, limited theatrical distribution that places where you could put your film. So I think Netflix has been a great addition for getting filmmakers' films out there. Uh, you know, Blackfish specifically, I think it had a, a big premiere on CNN. That also was, I think, uh, very helpful in getting it out to a lot of people. Uh, but the, the, the way these, these, the, the, the sort of di- distribution works is you create a documentary, right? And then you uh, have no idea how it's ever going to be seen. So you try and get it into... <laughs> 
uh, a film festival. Some of, you know, very small amount of you are lucky to get your film into like a Sundance or, you know, a Tribeca or a South by Southwest, uh, you know, or one of the other large film festivals. Uh, others uh, will get into some sort of like regional film festival or a lesser known film festival. But you start, you know, thinking, well, I need to get people who buy these films and make these deals to see this film. Uh, it's like a really strange kind of world and process to get into because a lot of filmmakers are, you know, they're sort of like either artsy people or uh, very, you know, policy, you know, uh, driven people. They're not necessarily like TV execs. They're not maybe the best salespeople for their own work. And they have to like quickly become that. Yeah. And and very often because documentary film doesn't pay very well, you're doing like another job while you're making your films. Uh, so all of a sudden you've made, you know, let's say you've spent five years of your life making this documentary. And in that last year, you're now climbing into the world of film festivals and you're trying to get meetings with the Netflixes and the, you know, the various distribution people. And you're thrust into this completely alien environment. Uh, and the, the folks who can kind of juggle both of that will have some success sometimes, uh, and others won't. There's probably, you know, tons of great documentaries that we're not seeing because the filmmaker is not able to get it in front of who needs to see it to put it out there. Right. Because they're more of an artist than a businessman. <clears throat> right. Right. Um, Netflix is like, it, it, it's great because you know, uh, so many people, all of a sudden Netflix became like your, your other TV channel, right? You know, when it started, it was kind of like a, a, just a way of like getting DVDs sent to your house and it morphed into this kind of platform. And now that everyone watches Netflix the same way they watch HBO or Showtime. Uh, but it is no surprise to documentary filmmakers, uh, or not surprised, but it, it's no like, um, secret that you you want to have your film on a platform like a netflix or a hulu or you know one of these huge providers uh to, to, in the same way that you would have wanted to get it on pbs uh or hbo back in the day but is there any uh, so if you could tell us a little bit about like this is something i've always wondered about when i'm scrolling through netflix about like the business and financial end of something on netflix like is it more that you you as a filmmaker at that point are only doing it um for the the sake of publicity and getting your name and your brand out there because a lot of people will get to see it but you're not really making money off of netflix or are you <laughs> actually like getting money depending on how many people view it I mean, Netflix will pay you to put their film on Netflix. Uh, it's not a lot of money. And uh, you're, you're sort of like, you know, it's changed over the years because as network, Netflix came, became more and more of like a destination for people who want to watch documentaries, uh, they had more of the, the power or the, the hold over how much they can pay you. Because uh, first off, if you're a documentary filmmaker, you are at the like bottom of the entertainment totem pole. Uh, <laughs> so anyone out there who's listening to this and thinking, you know, I want to become a documentary filmmaker, uh, you're not going to be, you know, riding around in limos uh, and have an entourage. You are going to be a scrappy, you know, uh, thirsty for money person who is, you know, still working your day job trying to get your film out there. So 
Netflix knows that. <laughs> and when you're dealing with Netflix, uh, here's like what's funny about my experience with Netflix. Uh, you know when you like you sign up for some internet service and you don't have a human interaction with anyone it's all just done by the internet right that's essentially what's happening when you're getting your film on netflix so in the same kind of way where you're like frustrated like oh i don't i can't talk to a human you know i have to fill out a form you're like you're putting your like baby into like the void so i mean i happen to get through netflix through like a third party person whose job is to negotiate with filmmakers on behalf of netflix hmm. So I did have like a human interaction, but it's like, it's not like we're having meetings with Netflix the way you would have meetings with like a network or, you know, the sort of person in charge of programming or acquisitions. And is all the uh, money decided ahead of time? Like you get one flat rate, no matter how many people end up viewing your movie. I mean, like if your movie blows up, is that, you know, does that help you out at all? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that they structure different deals with different filmmakers uh the the deal that we had structured for my film the linguist uh which was on netflix uh and evocateur which was on netflix they were different kinds of deals um and you know it depended really on uh you know where the film was coming what kind of distribution it had and you know story was and i think that a lot of filmmakers will have different experiences depending on what their film is and Sometimes it will be a lump sum, you know, let's say, and this is like ballpark number, you know, $10,000 to have your film on Netflix for, let's say, two years. And other times it will be maybe a little bit more than that or less than that with some sort of incentive on how many people watch it. But it really depends. The power is not in your hands. Right. Uh, unless you're one of, let's say, the three or four filmmakers who, you know, has uh, a film that hits theaters nationally, you know, and makes a huge splash, and then they have this sort of power in their hands. Right, right. Do you have any idea then what happens for a filmmaker that ends up having their show, uh, like, quote-unquote, would the word produced be the right way to put, like, produced by Netflix? How, how there's some of these documentaries coming out now and other shows that are, <clears throat> like, quote unquote made by Netflix, but then you you know, like making a murder is a perfect example of this. You talk to right. those women and they've been making that documentary for ten years. So obviously right. Netflix hasn't been making that documentary for ten years. What well, like they somehow got a meeting with Netflix and Netflix really liked what they saw and they probably are getting a sweeter deal than than other people. Yeah, I mean Netflix, like I said, has morphed. I mean they've changed from you know remember my my first documentary that was at Sundance was called The Linguists. And it uh, went on to go. It went on to PBS. It was nominated for an Emmy. That was my first interaction with Netflix. They put that film on for a year or two, I believe. And I, I think that that Netflix back in 2008, when when the film you know was out there, is a different Netflix from the Netflix of now. I mean, they they became a a successful television on the internet network. Uh, it's almost, it doesn't even matter. I mean, you're watching it on your TV. I think people today just think of Netflix like an HBO or a Showtime. And I would say that the the way in which they sort of find content is similar now to how HBO or, or CNN or PBS seeks out strong content. And the way that deals are structured are probably closer to the TV model at this point. So where, you know, where they were an aggregation model when I interacted with them way back when, now they're, a, now they're in sort of a production model where they're, you know, seeking out content like the, the two women you mentioned, 
where they probably, you know, liked what they saw and said, all right, let's turn it into a Netflix production. Yeah. Yeah. It helps. I mean, like I said, again, a documentary filmmaker is like a starving artist and you're looking for, you know, acceptance, industry acceptance or, uh, you know, some sort of entity to be the umbrella with the money to help get your film out there to promote it, uh, you know. And, and everyone is sort of fighting that same game. I mean, we've become friends with a lot of other doc filmmakers just, you know, by habit of, you know, going to these film festivals. And everyone has the same story. They're all sort of looking to get their film out there, trying to figure out, you know, how much did Netflix give you or how much, you know, was that deal worth? We're sort of sharing notes. And unfortunately, at the end of the day, we're all still not – we're not in a position of power. <laughs> we're, we're still still like the bottom of the totem pole yeah Uh, it's so interesting that you could be getting you know national press and you know a million or so people could be watching something of yours on netflix and you're like quote unquote famous and yet you're getting paid ten thousand dollars over a couple years that's just it's crazy that's insane yeah, I mean, look, I, my last film, uh, Evocateur, the Morton Downey Jr. movie, was on CNN in August. I think it was like the second highest rated show on cable television. And I am not driving a Bentley to work. So if that can, <laughs> <laughs> if that informs your idea of how success translates to you know financial success, uh, that, that's pretty much how it is. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, I'm not trying to like cry. I don't want everyone in the audience to cry for me. I'm just seeing this is like the reality of it. Yeah, you're, no, totally. You're making, yeah, no one feel bad for me. I, my life is fine. But the, <laughs> yeah, it's probably still better it than is, it would have been, obviously, without something like Netflix before. It's like, I can't imagine what it was like for documentary filmmakers in like the 80s and 90s. And, you know, like, who the hell is seeing your film? You know, like other huge film buffs that are going to little independent movie theaters, but any average person is not going to be seeing your film. And that's, that's kind of a bummer if you pour your heart and soul into this thing. Yeah, it is a bummer. I mean, there's a lot of bummers associated with this industry. And, you know, one bummer to me is that a lot of the like independent art house theaters, which is where you put your films, you know, if you're making documentaries for the crowd, that's not going to see like the latest mission impossible. They go to see, you know, a doc that's getting sort of buzzed about in the, you know, by the, by the film festivals, a lot of those independent art film theaters are the best place for your, for your film. And then like these huge chains started buying them. So then all of a sudden, instead of like, you know, let's say 50 different art house theaters looking to decide whether they want to put your film in various cities around the country. It was like one person who purchases indie films for those 50 theaters. Mm. And if that person doesn't like your film, you know, so long. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's a lot of sort of like bumps in the road that you're going to experience. For me, Netflix wasn't like my my like uh, big arrival. I, I would say uh, I have more sort of recent success on CNN, you know. Uh, CNN sort of changed hands from just being cable 24-7 news into like a major player on the documentary scene. Uh, And Blackfish, I think, was their first biggie. And uh, airing on CNN got us a larger audience for anything I've ever done. Yeah, that's cool, man. That's great. Yeah. I mean, the timing was good. We had a, a political film and it was during like the beginning of the Donald Trump explosions. It was just like really good timing. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's how, like, as a doc filmmaker, you measure your success. It's how many people have seen your film, because that's the point of these things. You yeah. know, we're we're telling like a, a, a true story about something 
we're trying to convey to the audience like here's what's happening in the world here's like some interesting thing you should think about and if nobody sees it then we're failing so we're trying to get to as many eyeballs as pop as possible and that's why like a netflix or a cnn or an hbo or a pbs or an a e you know these are the the top games in town for documentary filmmakers and there's so many of us and we're all fighting for the same eyeballs yeah so in that regard in terms of the most eyeballs that that can see it the better it was is evocateur it was is it like safe to say that that's your most famous doc that you've made yeah i think so i I don't even think there's a question so when you were making that was there any hint in your head that that movie (laughs) was going to be bigger than the other movies you'd made yeah, I mean, I had like an idea that because the subject matter was different, was sort of more tied into like a pop culture figure, that it would be uh, something maybe there was a more of an audience for. Uh, you know, my first film with my two partners, Dan and Seth, the three of us have made all of our films together. We're, you know, we're, we're Ironbound Films and Dan Miller, Seth Kramer and I. Uh, the first film we did together was called The Linguists. And I mentioned it earlier, it was at Sundance. I mean, it was like a scrappy kind of uh, buddy film about two scientists who had like an unusual job. They documented endangered languages. And when we made it, we weren't thinking like, oh, this is going to be at Sundance. This is going to you know, be an indie hit. We were just making like a cool film on an interesting topic. I mean, a topic like endangered languages is not like the most sexy thing you know, to pitch at like a TV pitch meeting. But the <laughs> characters were really interesting and the adventure we caught was really cool. So uh, when it got into Sundance, all of a sudden it was like a different ballgame uh, of opportunity for us. I think it made it easier to get funding for the next film that we were uh, that we ended up doing. Uh, it opened up a few doors. This was back in, you know, 2009, you know, it was at Sundance in 2008. Uh, so, you know, that film maybe had like the biggest impact in terms of opportunities for us so far. I mean, the, the vert, I guess is still not in with regard to evocateur, but, uh, I think many people have never heard of it. So the, the latest, you know, this evocateur film we did because of the premiere on CNN, uh, that's definitely gotten more attention than anything else we've done. So, and, but, and you, you kind of figured it would be that way when you were making it as well, just because the nature of the, the person that you were doing the documentary on, Morton Downey Jr.? Yeah, you know, we, we were coming back from lunch, I think, after, you know, not so far off of our Sundance experience, and we started talking like, uh, hey, you, you remember seeing that show, the Morton Downey Jr. show? And we, we had this like epiphany that the three of us all watched it as high school kids. And then as we started talking about how cool of a documentary it would be, uh, it was in our minds that like the topic was sexier than you know some of the other stuff we've done that it might find a bigger audience and because it involves celebrities uh, you know a lot of like celebrity really does sell and that's why pe- that's why you hear like uh, you know Angelina Jolie narrating a documentary film or you know that's why people use celebrities in their documentaries because people yeah. are sort of suckers for celebrities this film had like you know who's who of celebrities from like the 80s who are all like you know flamed out nobody's now <laughs> it didn't matter it was enough you know yeah and uh it was a it was a fun ride to kind of find people from that era of tv and you know what are they now kind of thing and i think that while we were making we were very aware like you know this this has like a more commercial possibility that's cool so 
I watched an interview with you and your partners on CNN that was really interesting. And one of your partners said, and, and I can't remember, like, I can't quote him exactly, but he said something along the lines of, like, you're not supposed to do that as a documentary maker. Like, we were nervous to do that in the movie. And he was speaking about um, showing how Morton Downey Jr. felt like he was kind of in his dad's shadow and stuff. And he was talking about how, you know, you don't want to play, like, pop armchair psychologist. And, you know, it, so what what sorts of things like that are you not supposed to do, kind of, as a documentary? It's, like, against the unspoken rules. Well, now there's no rules. I think the rules are out the window. Like, uh, you know, a lot of things get called documentary now. And, uh, you know, you could sort of take issue with documentaries that are like a, a filmmaker sort of angry screed about a topic, or you could, you know, take issue with a, what, the way someone is documenting something where they're becoming part of the story. Uh, you could take issue with a lot of different sort of characteristics of films. But at this point, the, there's no rules. I think you make a documentary and it will sort of sell or not sell or be liked or not liked based on how it connects with an audience. Uh, I mean, that's why, like, you know, what was that that sort of Obama slamming documentary? Was it called 2016 or whatever? It was like a, a huge success. Uh, you know, I think that with regard to what I think was probably Seth, my partner, who was, who made that comment, was talking about was, you know, we took some liberty with animations in the film to kind of climb into the mind of Morton Downey Jr. based on accounts from people who knew him. And, you know, maybe that's breaking a rule, maybe not, but it was kind of uh, a voice because the guy's dead that we wanted to kind of contribute to the this montage of this guy's weird crazy life and the best way to do that was to to animate it so i think that's what he was referring to when he when he said that so in the vocateur the morton downing jr movie there are you know these various animations where all of a sudden you're climbing into the head of morton downing jr uh through stories told from friends and family where you know his sort of his daddy issues were coming forward his abusive relationships were coming forward his, you know, his various uh, sort of crazy uh, reactions, the things were coming forward. And, and that was kind of, you know, a, a different approach than, let's say, the standard PBS doc you've, you, we used to do. And that's what he was talking about. How hard does it become at that point to edit a film? It's got to be really interesting when you kind of set out with a particular thesis of like, okay, I think like this is what this movie is going to look like. Like, this is what we're kind of going to talk about. And then the more people that you interview or the more things that you see, it, it does it ever kind of take a different spin? And then you're, you're trying to decide like, okay, how the hell should we edit this thing? Because there's all these different, you know, ways usually, to take this. Blake, it usually does. But with Avocateur, the more Downey Jr. movie, like if you look at like an early proposal that Dan, Seth and I wrote about what the film would do. And then you look at the finished film. It was pretty close. <laughs> I think we had like a really good defined vision. Uh, it's funny. We sent our like vision to Morton Downey Jr.'s fourth uh, widow, uh, and she was like completely offended by it. Uh, it you know it pretty much described the film we wanted to make. Here is this guy who you know rose to complete and total fame uh, with like a populist demagogue act on TV, uh, and then crashed and burned. Uh, like, you know, almost like Icarus, you know, getting too close to the flames. And the the widow said, this is a tough read. But the, the truth was that 
we wanted to tell a film about this guy that we were attracted to back when we were kids who now we're looking at, you know, in this cathartic way and, you know, warts and all, this is what his television legacy meant. Amazingly. It's sort of like the Donald Trump playbook. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But to, you know, to just put a period on that, it was very close to what we set out to do. So in editing and editing is always hard. But in editing the film, it wasn't the challenge for us was was less so, you know, sticking to the sort of vision that we had at the beginning. It was more like just the technical, you know, storytelling challenges of editing. It's really interesting. That probably means to a certain extent that throughout his career, it's like he became a caricature of himself. Like he just became the character that he was on TV as a person. And therefore, your your thoughts about him and you know how the movie would go really were him and how the movie would go right yeah i think that's i think that's what it was you know and it's great it's a great conversation piece that film because you know people loved or hated him and then they carried that love or hate towards our film too uh (laughs) you know it's like some people like hated morton downey jr so much because of his vile political you know beliefs and persona that the movie about him was sort of treated with the same kind of uh, animosity. And it was like, well, you know, it's a kind of this meta analysis of the guy and you're, you're hostile to it because you didn't like him. It's like, you know, you should watch the film and make a decision, you know, have an opinion based on that. But some people, they couldn't get past how much they hated him back then or others liked him back then, but didn't like the appeal the sort of look behind the curtain that acknowledged that he was an act. And those people were also, you know, offended by it, but it's, it was a really fun film to put out there. And I've never in my life as a filmmaker experienced such like bizarre circus, like reactions to the film. Some of the, uh, you know, screenings we did uh, one in particular was at Cine family in Los Angeles, which is a great, a great theater that does like these like cult like shows of films. And they, they program the film, you know, and other stuff around it. And the audience comes like almost Rocky Horror Picture Show style to see it. And that was a great screening because the widow who I mentioned earlier showed up uh, and was screaming at the at the screen, you know, cursing at the film. So uh, it, it's like no other film have I ever made was has had that kind of a reaction. As That's incredible. That's like such a uh, meta experience that it's like this, this like Morton Downey Jr. esque thing is taking place at the screening of the film. Yeah, the, exactly what it was, and that wasn't that happened at several theaters as we rolled it around the country uh, to show it. Uh, I, I hope I have that experience again. While it's going on, you're like you're a, a miserable wreck because you're like, oh my god, someone's screaming at the screen. But then, like, you think about it, like, a month later, like, oh, God, that was fantastic. The audience must have been completely entertained. (laughs) That's exactly what we should strive for every time. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned how you guys picked that that topic for that documentary of just, you know, your guys shared interest in him when you were in high school. What about the other documentaries that you guys have done? How do you guys typically pick a topic for a documentary? You know, each one has, like, kind of a story. But because we're a three-headed filmmaking team, it has to be something where the consensus sort of unites and we all like can imagine it being fun project. Uh, You know, these films, they're not like a year of work. They're like five years of work. So we have to kind of be happy and comfortable doing what we're doing for five years on the same topic. When we find a topic where the three of us could like, you know, understand or 
be happy working on the same thing for five years, then it's like it becomes like a no brainer. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, this is a film we should make. So you know, the linguist was uh, my partner Seth had come back from from Europe uh, and had you know an experience where he realized that he didn't speak Yiddish and yet his, you know, parents spoke Yiddish, his grandparents spoke Yiddish. He was visiting, you know, a, a city in Europe where the street was paved with uh, Jewish tombstones written in Yiddish. And he came back and said, you know, we should do a film about the dying language of Yiddish. And after, you know, a couple months of research, we realized that a, a more broadened story might be interesting about dying languages but then we ran into these these two linguists who, once you travel with them, you realize they're the film has to be, you know, traveling the world with these two linguists who get into trouble, who uh, are completely brilliant, amusing, interesting characters, and you know that's how that film came about. So every film has kind of like a, a an origin story uh, where you know the idea comes up and then the idea kind of gets developed a little bit and then you kind of find the character and then and then you know what the story is the same is true with my latest film the anthropologist you know we we were turned on to Susie crate who's an anthropologist at george mason university by the national science foundation they suggested we you know meet her and we we met her and you know we were interested in the work she was doing which was kind of an, uh looking at indigenous communities impacted by climate change uh, and we thought that, you know, maybe it would be an interesting film to follow her around. Uh, but then we met her daughter, who was like a 14-year-old at the time, who was half indigenous, uh, grew up in this small, like, Siberian village, um, and had, like, one foot in both the modern, you know, modern world of, you know, suburbia U.S., and another foot in this, like, small, interesting indigenous community in Siberia. And it was like it clicked. It was like, oh, yeah, this film is about... Susie and her daughter, Katie, uh, and, you know, how her daughter has a foot in both worlds and how, I mean, it became like a coming of age film. So, you know, these films, they, they have this kind of like organic beginning where they morph into something that we're all really excited about. A lot has to do with like good characters, but each one is kind of unique in that way. What an interesting thing. And I, I was going to ask that about, you know, a lot of documentary filmmakers it seems like try to make like a certain brand or a certain voice and it seems like you more or less stumbled into it both those times but do you feel like that's something you're going to do on purpose going forward which is it's like you're making a documentary based to to tell the story more or less of, of this topic like the anthropologist one would be um talking about the human impact of climate change or the linguist one you're talking about these languages that are dying out but rather than tell the story of the languages that are dying out uh by just you know interviewing different people throughout the entire thing and and uh just p piling on mounds of data you're just you know you're really following this relationship of these two linguists around the world and, and seeing their their personal interaction with this issue and on the anthropologist side you're following this woman and her daughter and looking at their personal interaction with this issue is that do you think that's kind of like your your thing yeah i mean it's our wheelhouse if you look at those two films and, and another film we did called the new recruits which also is sort of a character driven look at something else but you know, a Morton Downey film is maybe the anomaly. Uh, you know, we're three guys. So uh, to call it our thing, you know, is great and cool. But uh, because there's three of us, we sort of have a multiple things going on. <laughs> but <laughs> right. yeah, I mean, for, for sure. Like we, we made The Linguists 
And when we were introduced to Susie Crate, we certainly were thinking, well, you know, is Susie like another character like David and Greg from The Linguist that we would follow around and, and kind of learn, learn about a topic, uh, you know, by way of their characters. So, yeah, I, I would say yes. That's really cool. So the lingu- you mentioned that um, the National Science Foundation also kind of hooked you up with the anthropologists, and later on they ended up funding it. But so the National Science Foundation filmed, uh, I'm sorry, funded the linguists as well. And I, I I saw online that that was the first film that they ever funded that went to Sundance, which is awesome. Um, yes, and- it's cool. You don't get a T-shirt for that, uh, <laughs> for that big <laughs> yeah. but it is cool to tell people at cocktail parties. Totally, man. So how how the hell did that happen? Like, how did you get funding from the National Science Foundation? So Daniel and, and uh, Seth. Uh, my two partners, uh, like I mentioned, had been doing like uh, maybe I didn't mention it, but they had been making these like, you know, great historical docs and docs about science topics for PBS uh, before I joined them. Uh, they, you know, like the history of the the trial of Adolf Eichmann or the power grid across the nation uh, or the, you know, the bridges of New York or, you know, the big dig in Boston. And they were from this world where you you know, apply for grants uh, through entities like the National Science Foundation, and you know you make a film if you get the money. Uh, so when I joined them, we made a grant for applied for a grant for the from the National Science Foundation to do this film about vanishing voices, and uh, we shot uh, an adventure. You know, one of the trips that ended up in the film with David and Greg going to Siberia. And use that as kind of like a sizzle reel, they call it in the industry, mm-hmm. to you know say, here's our grant, here's our proposal, here's our sizzle reel. What do you think of you know a film uh, about this topic? And the National Science Foundation liked it, uh, and uh, we got a grant from them to do the linguists. And you know when we got the grant, it wasn't like, oh well, now this is going to be a Sundance film. It was you know okay, cool, we got a grant to do this film. You know we're blessed because. It's hard to get money to do films. This was like years before Kickstarter and all that. And when the film got into Sundance, you know, obviously we called the National Science Foundation and said, hey, guess what? You know, it was like a good news day for them. Uh, and, you know, the film went on and had a, 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 it was a success for them. You know, it was the first film to go to Sundance and it ended up on PBS and was nominated for an Emmy. So I, I think it was, you know, it was an easy call when we said, hey, we'd like to do another film for you. So, you know what's interesting to you these days or, you know, introduce us to another scientist or, yeah. uh, you know, we, we have a good relationship with the national science foundation. And, you know, it's funny while like the, the kind of Republican government is like picking them apart and, you know, they're doing great work, not just for films. They're, they're like providing grants for, you know, research that's going to like stop cancer and, you know, uh, come up with ways to clean water and, you know, things like that. So, I think it's like a cool organization. It, we, we don't have like an automatic money pipeline with them, but we've had two good successes in getting grants for films. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned working on on a film for five years. I have you ever? I, I like. I just. I can't even begin to fathom that. And have you ever, as you're working on the film, like changed so much as a person that it's like you're not even sure if you still want to be working on the film anymore or that you like <laughs> that, that you hold the same beliefs or whatever it's like i look at myself at 25 and myself yeah. at 30 it's like i was such a different person 
And I don't know like what things I would have set out like really in a just super go hard way to do when I was 25 that maybe at 30, I'm just like, ah, I don't really know that I want to do that anymore. Right. Well, that's a great question. I think the only change is I get fatter and fatter as the film, you know, goes along, <laughs> and, you know, but to, to give you like an honest answer, I think, you know, with us, we're doing multiple films simultaneous. I mean, that's something you got to also think about. So while I'm on a small island in the South Pacific, uh, in the country called Kiribati, following Susie Crate, the anthropologist, and her daughter Katie, I'm you know checking an email about a Morton Downey Jr. you know uh, movie interview with let's say Richard Bay, the talk show host. So there's multiple projects going on at the same time. All of our films are created not like we we start one and then finish and then start the next, overlapping. Uh, so you know w- <clears throat> because we're doing it that way. Uh, I think, you know, the intention for the film, and I should probably explain, like, you spend like the first year trying to raise money, you know, that's part of the five years is, okay, I have this idea, I'm having meetings with, you know, who's sort of important to the content, and I'm trying to raise money to make the film, and then maybe the second year I start shooting, you know, whether it's Verite with the subject, or, you know, we go to a country with them for a couple weeks to film their first adventure, uh, and then, you know, maybe the next year is spent both finishing, filming, you know, e- editing, then, you know, sweetening. And then another year it takes before, you know, we're out doing publicity or trying to get the film into theaters. So from soup to nuts, it's like a five year window to get a film from idea to, you know, on TV. Uh, and you're not doing like that film every day for five years, you know, like my character, Susie Creighton. Maybe she goes on an expedition like twice a year. So the rest of that year where, you know, working with the footage or doing other things, waiting for her to have her next mission. You know what I mean? It's not like uh, you're, you're just working on one thing. And then, you know, we try and pick topics that we believe have like a, a life to them where we're not going to be bored of it in five years. You know, uh, I, I think that if you watch any of our films, you know, you'll see that. Five years is a long time, yes, but I, I think if you choose a topic that you you really aren't going to get tired with, you won't. And and that's how you know we look at these things. We know that we're going to spend a sizable amount of time making this film, so it has to be something that we find completely fascinating and we won't be bored with in five years when it finally you know airs on TV Definitely. or goes to theaters. What do you think makes a really good documentary story? So just different elements that make a good documentary story, and then it, the, with the finished product in terms of its success and stuff, what percent do you think the success is due to the story and the subject matter? And what percent do you think is due to you guys and like the way that you're telling the story? So I think for us, uh, a successful documentary is something where the story is compelling and the characters are really fascinating. And if we start with fascinating characters and a compelling story, then the sort of component where we're adding our sort of style past to it, uh, it's also important. But without those first two things, uh, there's no film. So, you know, with Morton Downey Jr., we had an interesting character who had a a real, like, rise and fall. Uh, So that was like, you know, that was huge. When we were able to secure uh, access to the footage of his show, that was kind of the second, uh, you know, a component. Oh, okay, good. We've got the access to the footage and we've got a great character 
now you know everything else is kind of gravy and then we we approached it with you know our style pass using animations and sort of the editing style and making it feel like you were climbing into like his head and that kind of thing but you have to start with like a good good characters and a compelling story uh or else you know you can have the most stylish documentary if you don't have like those first two things i don't think the film succeeds yeah definitely man definitely what um what has been your favorite documentary to film thus far oh um you know what i don't want to cop out on you but like when when dan seth and i go uh on these documentary film shoots together and let's say we're in you know kenya filming the new recruits and you know traveling through the slums or we're in Orissa state in India following the linguists as they go into like, you know, tribal lands. I think that the journeys that we have, because Dan, Seth and I are really good friends. So for us, these are a blast. These trips are challenging as all hell, but I think it's hard to like pick one, but you know, every time we do one of these films where we're traveling together to someplace that we've never been, where we're meeting people that we would never meet in a billion years and that we're filming, you know, a challenging story that's my favorite part is is actually going out and doing these shoots with with my partners. That sounds uh, so cool. Do you feel like you're really able to enjoy it to its fullest, or like you know, oh, oh yeah, you mentioned going out into these tribes and stuff, or is it like you're you're in work mode, or you know, because you're looking through the lens of a camera, you're not like fully appreciating what's going on. No, we we are fully appreciating and enjoying what is going on, and that translates to the film. Like, if you want to have passion about what you're filming then it's not like a job. It's not like we're clocking in to do a commercial about soap. It's where like fully committed that we're experiencing the same wonderment and pain and chaos that the characters are experiencing. And if our passion, you know, for how much fun it is to do that translates, then we get good footage. And that's like that for every film documentary film show we do. I just did a, a couple film shoots uh, this past year in, Israel and in Singapore with a short film that we're working on. And, you know, I was really embedded with the character and I could tell just, you know, from his, the chaos that he was experiencing and the challenges he was having. Uh, and then like, you know, an off camera beer with the guy that this was going to be an interesting film. Cause I, I, I felt like the, the joy of telling a story. Yeah, man, that just sounds so cool. That's wonderful. <laughs> um, what are, uh, what are some of your favorite documentaries that you've ever watched? Um, you know, I like a lot of docs. Uh, like, I mean, when I was a kid, Roger and me was like a very, uh, you know, it was like one of the first docs that I sort of vibed with, you know, Michael Moore's Roger and me. Uh, I like a film called power trip about like the electric grid in, in, uh, Georgia and not Georgia here in the U S but in, in the Soviet union. Uh, I like, you know, films kind of offbeat character films like the devil and Daniel Johnston or crumb. Uh, a good friend of mine uh, did a film called The Band Called Death, which is pretty badass. Uh, Murder Ball comes to mind, and Anvil, or Waltz with Bashir. There's a lot of documentaries that I've liked uh, over the years. I, you know, generally it's like something I wouldn't normally, you know, know about, or just a cool story done in a really good way. Like Waltz with Bashir was a, a pretty uh impacting film on me especially in their use of animation i think that was one of the films that kind of led to maybe the animation approach in evocateur um born into brothels another good one there's a lot i i know i've like i've just like rattled off like a dozen but i will try to put links to every single one of them on the uh, show notes on half hour intern. <laughs> that way people can look them up have you uh have right. you seen all of making a murderer by any chance i did who I do did. you think did it who do you think did it um 
yeah, I don't know if I know. I, 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 I remember liking the first half where there was like a little like curveball thrown at the end of uh, each episode. And I liked the storytelling. And then the second half, I felt like I had just committed five hours, so I have to finish it. But it felt more like a court TV kind of experience. Yeah. Uh, but then towards the end, like, you know, the, again, with the, like the big curveballs, I, I definitely like I, I don't know who did it. But I, I know that, like, there's a bunch of like jerky people, both in like law enforcement, in the legal system, uh, in that, you know, in that state that, you know, when people do kill people, it's unfortunate that they're surrounded by some of these bastards. I so, know, right? That that but, I've but never I been. Tell you who did it per se, because I, I think like it's like a it's like a pretty like one sided look. You know, it's crafted to make you think that like these two poor guys are in jail, and hearing some of the things that came out after the film, it certainly throws a question mark up. So I don't know. I don't know who did it. I, I did enjoy it though. I yeah. think they did a good job. Yeah, I think they did a great job. It's so interesting when you're watching it. It's like it's uh it's kind of like the the later the like the last season of like Breaking Bad or something where like it's so difficult to watch, but you keep watching mm-hmm. it anyways. Like it like every episode of Making Murder, I've been like, damn it, like I have to watch another episode of this. Like it's just, but it, yeah. like it's like beating you down mentally as you're watching. I it. liked it like Serial or The Jinx. Like you know, I, I'm into those kind of like crime stories. They're they're completely compelling and, and all three of the ones i just mentioned jinx making murder and serial are fascinating so kudos to the filmmakers for making some art that's compelling and fascinating yeah definitely um let's see here what uh what has been your strangest or like your most amazing day that you've had on set <laughs> oh god uh an amazing day on set um here's a cool one you know there's a lot of them but i was we were interviewing uh, Morton Downey Jr.'s daughter, uh, one of his daughters for the film. Um, she lived in North Carolina. And um, I think during the interview, we asked her, you know, where where is he buried? Because it was not something that we could find, uh, you know, through our research. You know, there was no, like, grave anywhere, you know, with a tombstone that said Morton Downey Jr., um, so she turns to us during, you know, that interview and she says, see on the mantle over there, you know, there's, she had these like cigar boxes and in the cigar boxes, um, was his remains. And it was completely like shocking to me, uh, because, you know, because we didn't know where he was buried. And all of a sudden, you know, after like being working on this film for a couple of years, uh, we were in the room, you know, with his ashes and, you know, I got like, like goose pimples <laughs> because of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's like, a, um, it, it's like a weird feeling, uh, to, to kind of have like an experience like that when you, you don't get coming. Like we weren't filming at like a, a cemetery where we knew we were going to find the remains, but all of a sudden like this guy who we've put so much time into researching so much time into thinking about, we were like, you know, we were on like hallowed ground. And amazingly, he was in like a, a watch box. The guy loved watches. And, you know, his, his daughter Kelly had him like <laughs> in his ashes in like a box that, you know, it says like Rolex on it. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's like being on a treasure hunt for years or something. And then you go to ask someone for some <laughs> advice. Like, by any chance, do you know where this is? Oh, yeah, it's just like right, right here. It's just right here. It was like a, ro- it was a total rosebud moment. Yeah, interesting. 
Um, have any of the documentaries that you've made changed the way that you've lived your life or like really changed the, like the way you think? Absolutely. I think following around ethnographers, you know, who look at indigenous people and, and sort of kind of vibe off of their culture and learn from their language, it completely, you know, changes your worldview. So, you know, when I hear people that have like a real like black or white opinion on like a global story. It's like, you know, you got to imagine like drop into that country and like, you know, leave the hotel and the tourist sites and go see how people really are living there and what their real story is. Not everything is so cut and dry and black and white. Not like you can't just like say an entire culture is evil or you can't just say like, you know, a Muslim is, is, is a bad guy and you can't be so black or white unless you go and experience the world. You see like there's like merit and value to other cultures and maybe even people that aren't so far along, you know, and advanced with technology and, and you know, living in the first world, but there's still merit to their culture and to their wisdom. And I, I think that's changed me as a person and it's opened up my worldview is just going out and, you know, not just getting everything that, you know, from TV. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, for me from TV, just from from being a fan of documentaries and watching them. And like I said, kind of therefore, like praising the uh, praising Netflix and the way that them even being around has kind of changed the way that society thinks about certain issues. I uh, yeah, I can't imagine actually being there and, and filming and living the issues and being on the other side of it. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it's cool. I mean, it's a cool job. Um, all right. So let's, uh, let's give people some advice for that cool job. So if there's anyone listening to this that uh, thinks that they would want to make their own documentary, what, uh, what advice would you give people in terms of like equipment, in terms of storytelling, in terms of their mindset going into it? So equipment, I'm not the like the right guy. I'm a real scrappy, you know, technical person. I I've even been the DP on some of our shoots and our early films, and it's just sort of like based on you know as a kid playing with cameras and you know going out there. But I'm not like the guy to say you need the 4K, you know, Sony 300, etc. I think it's like it's sort of sort of irrelevant. It's kind of like you know when you finally get to what you're shooting, you'll, you'll be able to do enough research then and there to, you know, figure out what camera is best to use and what sound to use. And what, what I would say is uh, try and find a story first and be passionate about it. And then you'll see quickly how people react to when you tell them what your story is or what you're thinking. If every single person you talk to is sort of like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Good luck with that. (laughs) Or if people are like, Oh wow, that's cool. I'd be interested in it. That should sort of, inspire you to kind of get your film made or to kind of try and tell your story. If you're someone who's just like starting out, you know, learn from people, you know, uh, get an internship uh, with maybe a small documentary company or, you know, or a bigger one if, if you, if you're able to, and kind of really like learn how they approach uh, making a film. Uh, you know, it's, it's an often used analogy when I'm talking to young people who want to become filmmakers, but the karate kid, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to reference the, the, the original karate kid, but as Mr. Miyagi is telling Daniel to paint the fence or wax the car or scrub the deck, uh, he's teaching him not how to do those things, but how to sort of do his karate. I find it's like a similar thing with, with being a filmmaker, a lot of what you're doing as a producer and a director is you're listening to people 
you're having phone calls, you're setting up meetings, you're uh, you know, researching and reading and looking. Uh, well, if you can kind of hone those skills, the skills you need to like to talk on the phone with a subject and convince them that they should let you come and follow them, you know, that's something you need to hone by having phone calls with people who aren't the subject of your film. You need to sort of build the skill sets that are necessary for making a film. Sometimes it's your, your ability to schmooze people. Uh, sometimes it's your ability to kind of Google and research something. Uh, sometimes it's your ability to talk on the phone or to take notes, to be a good listener, uh, to pay attention when people are talking, to kind of listen to what they're saying on the surface, but what they're also saying not on the surface. So as like a filmmaker starting out, that's the advice I'd give you is sort of to kind of hone the skills that are necessary and also to know uh, which side of the business you really are interested in. Are you interested in uh, being a producer, going out into the field, or are you more interested in working in an edit room, kind of chopping up? Is that where you're good at, sort of knowing how to put together a puzzle? Uh, but the sooner you can figure out what you're good at and what you want to do and where those two things kind of merge on like you know, the, the line chart, uh, the better off you'll be. Man, Jeremy, that is such good advice. I love your advice, the the Mr. Miyagi advice that you give about breaking down the components of film and just trying to do those things and getting good at those things. That it reminds me so much of uh, of the guy that I had on the show about being in the Peace Corps. And when I asked him for advice mm -hmm. about the Peace Corps, I thought he was going to say something about um, you know volunteering at home or this or that. And he's like, I recommend that you go to a town that's like two hours away from you where you don't know anyone in that town. No one knows you and just try to talk to strangers and like see the reactions that you get from people and uh, and like just try to hang out for like eight hours of a day in a town where you don't know anybody because he's like, that's what you do all day in the Peace Corps and try to explain to people like why you're even there to begin with. And uh, it's such an interesting way to break down, you know, it, rather than um, this fanciful idea of being in the Peace Corps, like what the day to day is like. And that's exactly what you're saying on the filmmaking side, you know, is like, see if you can get people to allow you to follow them around. See if you can get people to uh, agree to an interview, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I agree with your Peace Corps friend. Yeah. Love it, man. Great advice. Dude, Jeremy, um, where can we find all of your movies now? I know you mentioned that at a time they were on Netflix. Are they still on Netflix or do we got to go elsewhere? Uh, yeah, the best place to look is ironboundfilms.com. And uh, we have a new website we just posted. And it, there's a, a section on films and TV that we've done. And, you know, you can go there and you'll be able to sort of path your way. I think, you know, The Linguist is a DVD you'd have to order. And uh, The New Recruits is on the PBS website. And Avocateur is still on Netflix, I believe. Uh, so, yeah, I'd say go to ironboundfilms.com for any information and oral information on, uh, on our films. Awesome. Jeremy, thanks so much for your time, man. We really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Blake. Hey, everyone. It's Blake. Hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I wonder how I could help Blake out. First of all, you are probably the nicest person in the entire world. Secondly, all you have to do is just tell a friend about the show. I would really appreciate it. If you're sitting there and thinking, man, my job is really interesting, or man, I do this totally badass hobby. I should totally be on this show. 
then you totally should be on the show. Just reach out to me on halfhourintern.com, my website. You can email me through there. And uh, if there is another job or hobby that you don't do, but you just want to hear about it, you can submit any sort of idea through the Submit Your Ideas link on the page. Thanks again for listening. Take care.